Diakonasa Cops Calling is sponsored by Luciano's Woodworking. Luciano's Woodworking is owned and operated by Carlos Luciano Jr., and he works with each of his customers to create hand-carved wooden plaques, signs, wall hangings, and more. Currently, he is working on a wall hanging for Diakonasa Cops Calling, and I am super excited to see it once it's completed. He's worked with me to meet the style, the colors, the print, and the frame I want for this project. You can see his talented work. Just check out Luciano's Woodworking on Facebook and Instagram. Whether you want a welcome sign for your home, a plaque to display challenge coins, a hand-carved piece of your favorite sports team, a personalized stovetop cover, retirement plaques for those in the military or in law enforcement, wall art for rooms in your house, or any other similar project, he can do it. Carlos is a full-time police officer, a husband, and a father, but he enjoys kicking up the dust with this side hobby. He's a busy guy, but you will not be disappointed as you patiently wait for him to complete your project. So check out Luciano's Woodworking right now on Facebook and Instagram. See his work, share his work, share him on social media, and then let him know what project you'd like him to start for you. This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. Most of the people clicking on your silly TikTok video of you dancing in your uniform in front of a cruiser or singing in your car or whatever it is that you're doing, and most of the people coming to your pithy named events already like you. Welcome to Diakonasa Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. And on this episode, uh, I'm doing a first. My patrons uh, were able to submit some questions to me uh, for an Ask Me Anything episode. Uh, and I got some really good questions, uh, which I will be answering here in a little bit. It's the first time I've done anything like this. So uh, I'm rolling solo for this episode, and I'll be answering those questions, like I said here, just in a little bit. I do want you to know that after this episode, the podcast will be on another short summer break. Uh, the next episode will be coming out on August 24. After the break, I have some really cool guests lined up, including a retired state trooper, a past Cue the Dip winner, which is going to be awesome. Really excited to have that guy on. And a young lady who was trapped in addiction uh, many years ago, uh, which caused her to cross paths with the police and started her on a journey of meeting the one who saves and getting clean um, it's a really cool story, really cool testimony of how the police and, and the criminal justice system played a role in, in her getting the help she needed and ultimately putting her on a path to meet uh, her Lord and Savior. So now, if you're a patron, I would like to uh, kick out a patron-only episode during the break. Um, so hopefully I can do that. I also would like to do it live. Uh, it's completely different. Podbean, uh, my my uh, podcast host, has a, a live option to do podcasts live, to do episodes live, and I would like to try it. So now that I'm voicing it and putting it out there, it's going to put pressure on me to do it and to figure it out because I really got to figure it out. I have no idea how to do it, but um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm, I might do that. I'm gonna see if I can do that during this break, and uh, I'd also like to give a shout out to a new patron, a brand new patron. 
uh, Chuck and Beth Ann Plumberg. Great couple. And I really appreciate them becoming my newest patrons. Don't forget, if you are not yet a patron and you want to become one and join the ranks of some very cool people like Chuck and Beth Ann Plumberg, go to diakonosacc.podbean.com to check it out. All right, so let's get into the Ask Me Anything portion of this episode. I got a wide range of questions. I got some faith-related questions. I got some law enforcement-related questions, and I even got a child-rearing question, uh, which is super interesting. So I think I'll start with uh, some of the law enforcement-related questions. The first one, how do you think about the decriminalization of marijuana and potentially other drugs? Is this helpful so police can focus on larger issues or harmful long-term? Well, first and foremost, I think we need to break down what decriminalization versus legalized means. They do have slightly different meanings. So when you decriminalize something like marijuana, no criminal charges are possible, but civil action can still be sought, uh, program referrals, um, placing people in yeah, placing people in, in programs or, or mitigation efforts, uh, you know, is, can still be used, whereas legalization means wide open, no intervention at all. I disagree with both. Um, but as I went on in my career, I was okay with the, the possession of small amount of marijuana here in Pennsylvania is what they call it, anything less than 30 grams. I was okay with it with the grading of that crime being reduced. I thought it was helpful because the legislator, the legislators basically decided that the penalties for that crime were basically a fine. And so when I started my career in law enforcement, possession of a small amount of marijuana was a ungraded misdemeanor. Uh, you could uh, get a suspended license for it. You could face some probation for it and some fines. And as I went on in my career, the only thing, the only sentence people were getting for it was fines for, for, for most of those crimes, people were only getting fines. And so I felt like when the city uh, reduced possession of a small amount of marijuana for people who had never been cited or arrested for it before to a summary offense where I could just write a citation, I was like, well, it makes sense. It's saving me time instead of writing out criminal charges and having them only get a fine anyways. I can write a citation and have them get a fine. So that made sense for me. I'm not saying I agreed with dropping the grading, but it made sense since the, since the punishment for the crime was was no longer that great and was just a fine. Um, and just to be clear, I do think that the possession of marijuana, a small amount of marijuana, is in a general sense a minor crime. But many people engaged in using weed are also many times involved in other crimes. Not all, but many. And the fact that marijuana is illegal and that I believe it should be illegal also helps uh, officers on the street in, in keeping other illegal activity at bay. Um, so one reason I think that um, decriminalizing it or making it uh, legal is a problem is, is it's going to bring about more crimes, other crimes and problems. Um, it's it's going to bring about more addicted people. Um, and the legislation and the laws are lacking uh, when it is decriminalized or when it's legalized or even when it's just um, legalized for medicinal purposes. 
um, you know, you start seeing all these problems with the law and, and case law needs to be created in order for officers to fully understand what they can and can't do legally do. It, it becomes a quagmire on the street on how an officer navigates someone who has marijuana on them because now it may be legal, it may not be legal, it may be medicinal, it may not be medicinal, it may be packaged correctly, it may not be packaged correctly. It increases the the burden on police officers to be able to navigate through the legality of of what they're looking at, even when they see weed in plain view, or they see paraphernalia in plain view, or they smell it, um, that sort of things. As you will see, I, I did some research on this, um, and you'll see that my belief that it, it could possibly increase the black market is not unfounded um, because having it ready, readily available uh, but having the price regulated will drive people to maybe find it elsewhere cheaper. It's also going to provide a way for drug dealers to buy it legally and then sell it illegally. And uh, it's going to increase addiction levels and it's going to drive other crime uh, as, addiction, as addiction increases. I did find one website that... Um, had some good resources on it. I don't agree with everything on the website, but um, it seems like now they're they're very steeped in some of the social justice agendas. But uh, it's called Smart Approaches to Marijuana. And years ago, I'm I'm talking probably back in 2013, 2014, they released a uh, a uh, a resource called Top Ten Messages Against Legalization. And uh, some of these I found really interesting. I'm not going to read down through all 10, um, but one of them was marijuana use will increase under legalization uh, because it's um, uh, because many drugs are accessible and available. Uh, they said our legal drugs are used far more than our illegal ones. So the idea if you make a drug accessible and available, it's going to be used far more than it was when it was illegal. Um, and carried and carried penalties and consequences. Uh, another point they made is marijuana is especially harmful to kids and adolescents, and because it's more readily available, more kids and adolescents are using it. Um, they they had a uh, stat in here that said marijuana contributes to psychosis and schizophrenia. Um, addiction happens in one out of six kids who ever use it even one time, and it reduces IQ among those who started smoking before age 18. Another point they made, uh, today's marijuana is not your Woodstock weed. THC, which is the chemical that causes the psychological effects and response. Back in the 1960s and 70s, THC levels of marijuana uh, smoked then were averaging around 1%, increasing to just under 4% in 1983, and then almost tripling in the subsequent 30 years um, to around 11% in 2011. And I have no doubt that since 2011, uh, those THC levels have increased even more. Another point made in this resource from Smart Approaches to Marijuana was that people are not in prison for small-time marijuana use. In other words, there's a big argument out there that there's that prisons are filled with people who um, only got arrested for uh, small amounts of marijuana or, or low amounts of marijuana. And they found that statistics on a state-level prisoners revealed that only 0.3% of all state inmate, inmates were behind bars for marijuana possession only. 
uh, with many of those pleading down from more more serious crimes. Uh, They found that 99.8% of federal prisoners sentenced for drug offenses were incarcerated for drug trafficking, and and that the risk of arrest for each joint smoked is is 1 in 12,000. So I will say this, our press really likes to write these articles where they talk about how this person or that person has been in jail for this many years um, and, and they only got arrested with this amount of weed, like an ounce of weed or a small amount of weed. And I will say this, whenever you see an article like that, do some diligent research because usually the, there's a lot more to the story. They're not just in prison because they had a small amount of marijuana. They're usually in prison because they basically had, it was like their last um, chance. It was like their third strike. And they may have been involved in violent crime or or multiple violent crimes in the past. Their rap sheet is extensive. And then they were um, caught with marijuana and, and initially charged with uh, delivery or possession of it with intent to deliver it, not just possession of it um, simply to use for themselves. So there's there a lot of times, not all the time, but I many, many times when you see an article like that, there is much more to the story. And the person who's in jail for, you know, a long time is not just there just because they had, uh, they possessed marijuana. There is more to the story. There's more to their rap sheet. There's more to their criminal history that should be uh, investigated and checked out. Here's uh, one point uh, they made in this study that I thought was really interesting. Neither Portugal nor Holland provides any successful example of legalization. Independent research reveals that in the Netherlands, where marijuana was commercialized and sold openly at, quote, coffee shops, marijuana use among young adults increased almost 300%. Now the Dutch are retreating from those loose policies. There are signs that tolerance for marijuana in the Netherlands is receding. They have recently closed hundreds of coffee shops, and today Dutch citizens have a higher likelihood of being admitted to treatment than nearly all other countries in Europe. Again, this this study was back in 2013, 2014, so that those figures might be a little different now. But Portugal use levels are mixed, and despite reports to the contrary, they have not legalized drugs. In 2001, Portugal started to refer drug users to three-person panels of social workers that recommend treatment or another course of action. As the European Monitoring Center's finding concluded, findings concluded, the country does not show specific developments in its drug situation that would clearly distinguish it from other European countries that have a different policy. Another point made in this study, marijuana has medicinal properties, but we shouldn't smoke the plant in order to derive those benefits, um, just like we don't smoke opium to get the benefits of morphine. Um, In states with medical marijuana laws, the average user is a male in his 30s with no terminal illness and a history of drug abuse. Less than 2% of users have cancer or AIDS, and residents of states with medical marijuana laws have abuse and dependency rates almost twice as high as states with no such laws. And the final point in the study that I'll I'll share is uh, experience from Colorado is not promising. Now, when this was, uh, again, when this study was done, Colorado uh, was just um, had a regulated medical marijuana uh, laws, I believe. Now Colorado is fully legal. It's fully uh, marijuana is fully legal in Colorado. 
uh, but two reports uh, released back in August 2013 when they only had medicinal marijuana uh, being legal showed that um, it was not well regulated at all. Teen use had increased in the past five years. Currently, um, the marijuana use rate among Colorado teens was 50% at that time, uh, was, I'm sorry, 50% above the national average. Drug-related referrals for high school students testing positive for marijuana had increased. Medical marijuana is easily diverted to youth. And while the total number of car crashes declined from 2007 to 2011 in Colorado, the number of fatal car crashes with drivers testing positive for marijuana rose sharply. In addition to this study by Smart Approaches to Marijuana, there was another uh, study I read and looked at from uh, May and June uh, 2019 in the Journal of the Missouri State Medical Association. And it said the National Association of Assistant United States Attorneys noted that citizens in states that have legalized marijuana for medical use have seen the abuse of such laws, which has created many undesirable and unforeseen effects, including, now this is just in states that have legalized it for medical use. This is not full legalization, only medical use. They've seen increased violence directed toward marijuana dispensary owners and employees. They've seen increased burglaries of marijuana dispensaries. They've seen a lack of effort on the part of dispensary owners and employees to control unlawful or nuisance behavior in and around the business or to comply with state laws designed to regulate medical marijuana use. They've seen increased loitering, noises, litter, and property damage, smoking of marijuana in public areas. They've seen increased offenses involving driving while under the influence of marijuana. They've seen an influx of criminal elements into the neighborhoods where the dispensaries are located. They've seen marijuana distributors operating in school zones or close to schools or parks. They've seen an increased sale of marijuana to juveniles under the age of 18 or to customers who are young and do not have an illness or serious medical condition. And I would say all that uh, appears to be happening and true in Pennsylvania as we have opened up uh, medical marijuana dispensaries. In addition, in this study, in this journal uh, report, the National Sheriff's Association, the National District Attorneys Association, the National Narcotics Officers Association Coalition noted that states that legalized marijuana have been unable to control the black market for the drug. The Oregon State Police reported that 70% of the marijuana transactions remain illegal despite legalization laws. Marijuana is sold on the streets in legalized states and exported in vast quantities to other non-legalized jurisdictions. There are even reports of foreign drug cartels, including Mexican cartels, moving operations to Colorado to take advantage of lax marijuana laws. According to the California Police Chiefs Association, there is ample documentation of the many adverse effects of marijuana legalization in addition to the violation in addition to the violations of federal law. And I'll just share quickly that uh, Laura and I were in Colorado within the last two years, and uh, it's insane. I, I couldn't believe the amount of marijuana that was being smoked in that state. Um, we, we were traveling into Denver to catch a flight back here to PA, and we were on the highway coming into Denver, and there were so many people around us in cars smoking marijuana, I was getting a contact high. It, w- it was it was crazy, crazy. 
And, and also concerning that although that so many people around me were driving and smoking weed. Um, so that's just weed. So I think if you decriminalize it or legalize the harder stuff, those problems I laid out above will be even worse. Um, drugs like cocaine, heroin, meth are many times more addictive and destructive than marijuana. Um, so I, I think it's a huge mistake to decriminalize it. I think it's a mistake to to even offer it legally at, for medicinal purposes. Um, and I, I think it's uh, wrong to legalize it. Um, all three of those options, I think, are not the best options. Uh, from a street cop perspective, it also, I kind of touched on this earlier, it doesn't make policing easier. Because the police enforce the law and because legislators make laws and the police enforce them, the legalization, decriminalization, or legalized medical usage creates a quagmire nightmare for new laws and difficult case law to navigate by the police. As I've suggested, decriminalizing drugs won't suddenly make crime and or the violence attached to it disappear. And I, I just read through a bunch of stats that prove that and a bunch of findings that prove that. And there's a lot of violence attached to the drug trade. Street level violence is often being driven by the drug trade. So I don't believe, um, as do many of the resources I cited, that it will eradicate the black market. And so therefore, the violence is going to continue. The black market's going to continue. But if it's decriminalized, you basically handcuff the police even more. And what do I mean by that exactly? Well, if you decriminalize something, but it still has a flourishing black market, you take things away that police officers can use, like smelling it or seeing it or seeing paraphernalia associated with it. And you create this environment that's right for criminals to beat the system because all they have to say is, well, I have it for medicinal purposes. Or it's legal. The officer didn't know that I had more than the legal amount. So you have to create all these laws in order to help the police navigate through it. And those laws continue to change and the and case laws continue to be created and it just becomes uh, a mess. It becomes a mess to work through as a police officer on the street. And so what's what happens is most times, you know, now, even in Pennsylvania, a police officer smells marijuana coming from a car or sees marijuana in a car. It becomes so much more difficult to investigate that because it's legalized for medicinal purposes. And so a person can easily get a card that says, hey, I need marijuana um, for medicinal purposes. Here's my card. There's no way to track the card. There's no way to figure out if the card's legitimate. There's no way to go back and find out if a legitimate doctor gave them the card. And I can tell you personally, based on the list of things in Pennsylvania that you can get medicinal marijuana for, it's very easy. I could probably be smoking weed right now while I'm doing this show, to be quite honest. I, I don't think I would have any problem at all talking to a doctor and getting a medical marijuana card and uh, and and using it. So that's how, that's how easy it is. All right, question number two uh, on my list. How do you and other police think about body cameras? Are they helpful or harmful? Oh, good question. Uh, short answer, I'm very mixed on it. Uh, there's both positives and negatives. Uh, some of the pos- positives, obviously, it, it does protect officers from false accusations. It does promote transparency, um, and it and it does protect citizens from bad officers. If there if there is a bad officer out there, and they have a body cam on, yeah, that's it's going to keep that that officer in check. 
Um, it also helps with accuracy in reports, especially reports that are being done after high stress violent incidents. Um, and you'll see that's that's also kind of on my negative list. But the negatives, um, just a big brother complex on officers. Officers feel the weight of that camera uh, on their chest or on their belt. Uh, it just means more scrutiny about everything they do and say, uh, reduce space to vent and relax um, as everything they say and do is scrutinized. And in my last episode with Detective Lowe, he, he commented about this, that you have to let guys and you have to give them the space to vent. And um, so that just becomes more difficult with a camera on because everyone's always concerned about, is your camera on? Is it off? Like, can I voice an opinion about something or is it going to be captured on camera and be used against me? I mean, just literally just imagine having to wear a camera all day at work and having pages and pages of rules about its use, uh, when it can be on, when it can be off, and just constantly having to think about the fact that it's recording everything you you do and say. I mean, even if you're a decent person, even if you're a, 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 yeah, a decent person who uh, operates in a, in a high character way and high integrity way, just think about a camera being able to capture any, any attitude you have, any, any negative thing you say, um, any mistake you make. Um, so it's, it's just a very, it's burdensome. Um, and the policies are burdensome too. Um, you know, you have policies on when it should be on, when it should be off. Is there, uh, can you use discretion when it's on and off? What about HIPAA? You know, if you're in a hospital or if you're talking to someone about a medical event, what about t- talking to a victim that doesn't want to be recorded? What about those working in plain clothes units and dealing with confidential informants? All these rules and regulations need to be figured out in policy. And, and then in addition to that, what are the rules about viewing the recordings? Who can view it? When can you view it? And to that end, it makes the job of law enforcement, again, more cumbersome because now you not only are relying on your notes and your recollection to write a report, but you now are forced to watch your body camera to make sure that your report and the video match perfectly because if not, a defense attorney will use it to win. So again, it, it helps with the accuracy of reports because a video is better than your mem- memory, especially under stress, but that also adds an immense amount of more work for you when you're writing a report because you have to make sure it matches perfectly because if not, it's, you're, you're going to get destroyed on the stand. And the, the defense attorney is going to say, well, you see, he lied in his report. Well, no, he didn't lie. He just, the way he remembered it and perceived it was different than how it maybe actually happened. And many officers at a scene, the same scene, will perceive different things. They will see different things. They will notice different things. They will miss certain things. And so now you have all these cameras on different officers and different angles, and and you are forced to watch those to make sure that your reports match what's on the camera, not because you're lying about anything, but because your memory isn't as good as the camera and all the different angles of the camera. And so it just makes report writing uh, really, really cumbersome. You know, body cams, it's it's increased technology and, and any and all increasing technology in law enforcement just puts more pressure and responsibilities on the officers, puts more demands on them. Um, it takes them off the street more uh, because the length of their reports and everything like that, they, they have limitations. Um, and, uh, you know, they can't, they can't smell for instance, if you smell marijuana and, and you're going to use that to investigate further um, and you believe you can use it in the instance, 
Uh, they, you know, a camera isn't smelling that they don't have peripheral vision and they don't capture everything. I mean, that's just proved when you watch the news, um, the news will slow down and freeze frame videos. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they don't capture everything the same way a human eye captures everything. And they don't have a sense of touch. An example of that would be an officer feels someone tense. Uh, maybe they're patting them down and they feel them tense. Well, that's a fight or flight response. And, and the officer may, tell the person to relax. And if they don't relax, he may dump them on the ground. Well, camera doesn't see that or feel that action. Um, so ultimately I don't, I don't oppose them. I really don't, but I'm just not sure they're worth it. They're costing departments thousands and thousands of dollars. Some are even ending the programs because it's just too expensive. I also think people thought they would be the magic pill to just solve all the perceived problems with the police. And it, and it just isn't those that hate the police still do. It has produced more videos for people to use and their claims police uh, are, are involved in bad conduct or brutality when they don't even know what they're looking at because they don't understand policy or use of force or case law regarding force or really anything, just a video they don't like. And more of those are being are out there for people to critique. So I, I don't think it's really solved the uh, problem or the perceived problem. It's just made officers' jobs harder place more pressure on them to be perfect every time and and have a perfect attitude all the time. But at the same time, I'll say this, I do wish there were times earlier in my career when I did have one uh, because it would have saved me a lot of grief from false accusations made against me. And I know that it has helped many officers um, who have had complaints made against them that are just simply untrue. Uh, any officer worth their weight in their job who is out there trying to make a difference, trying to be proactive, is facing uh, false accusations all the time and, and ridiculous complaints. Um, so I do wish I would have had one several times in my career, early in my career. All right, we're, we're jumping into a child rearing question. What is one of the best traits a parent can teach a child? Well, I think first of all, you need to define trait um, I believe I found this on oxford.com or something, but trait means a distinguishing quality or characteristic. Uh, as a Christian parent, I would say for me, it starts in Mark 12, 29, where Jesus tells us that the first and greatest commandment is that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that the second greatest flows out of this when he said that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, I will say this, this has been perverted in our social justice world. This does not mean we affirm or agree with or praise or promote or celebrate sin. We can love people and share truth with them. It is possible. But I think for Lauren and I, this is kind of where it starts with our kids that, you know, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and everything else from that uh, flows down. Now, the law enforcement side of me would say teaching them the trait of personal responsibility is super important. Uh, I deal, I dealt with so many people in my duties in law enforcement that absolutely categorically refused to take personal responsibility for their actions. It was always somebody else's fault or because something happened to them or because someone wronged them or because they don't have money or because they were mistreated or because, because, because the list goes on. People that literally refuse to comprehend or understand that their actions directly impacted my involvement with them. So as a parent, one way you instill this is with discipline and consequences. If there are none, uh, when they're under your roof, 
then when they are on their own, they will think they can do whatever they want. And they will be shocked when there are consequences and they will have a hard time taking responsibility and dealing with those consequences. I mean, the the young men I dealt with came from homes where there was no discipline, no consequences, literally could do whatever they wanted to do um, and, and face no serious, I'm talking serious consequences. They will, you know, they're... They're in for a painful lesson later in life. If a child, um, you know, as a child, the consequences are small, but bad behavior as an adult brings on much, much larger consequences. And so discipline and consequences help the child learn that they don't run the show and that their actions can reap good rewards or terrible consequences. I mean, that's life. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. That's a strong word. That's a word my kids can't even use unless they're talking about an inanimate object. And then Laura and I are still up for discussion if they can use it. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Think about that. If you don't offer discipline and consequences in your home, you, you're literally showing that you hate your kids. That's what this verse says. I'm not saying that. That's what this verse says. And so I think it's so important to instill that that idea that um, you know discipline and training in order to correct behavior and 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 bring about um, changes in in the way you act and 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 bring about true heart change. Explain to them why you're disciplining them and why you're providing consequences. Explain it to them in light of scripture. You know that's that's what Lauren and I try to do because i i'm I'm raising adults they're kids now but i'm raising them to be adults and when i go out into the world there's going to be consequences for their actions and those could be good consequences or they can be bad consequences all right moving on no more on that next question in your episode with al he referenced the romans road can you share more about the romans road which verses it includes and its importance ah great question i love this question so the Romans Road, um, I, I, I broke it down basically into four verses, I think, four or five verses here. Um, some people use like four or five main verses, and then they supplement other verses in there to drive home points. But I'm just going to, you know, um, talk about the main ones here. The first one is out of Romans 3.23, where it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the fact is, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. That's laid out in this passage. And then in Romans 6.23a, the very first part of Romans uh, 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. So we all have sinned, and what we deserve and what we've earned from that sin is death. That's that's what we deserve. That's what we earned. But Romans 6.23b provides the hope. Um, And in the second part of that verse, it says, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God has graciously gifted us eternal life through Jesus, even though we deserve and we have earned death. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I'm a sinner. I deserve death. I've earned death. But I have a gracious gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And Romans 10.9 explains how we can, by faith, 
uh, receive that gift, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we have only to accept this gift by faith in Jesus alone, recognizing, confessing our sin and need for a Savior, a belief, a confession that Jesus is who he said he was, that he died for our sins, and that he rose uh, from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death. And then Romans 5.1 gives us a picture of, of the beauty of this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified, or in other words, made righteous and without sin through Jesus and his work on the cross. We now have peace with God. His perfect justice, God's perfect justice no longer needs and means his wrath to be poured out on us. But since it was poured out on Jesus on our behalf, we can now live at peace with God. We can be considered a son or daughter of God and we can have peace with him because even though our sin deserves his wrath, he poured that wrath out on Jesus who was a substitute for us. That's the Romans road. And it's so important because it clearly establishes who we are, who God is, who Jesus is, and what he's done for us um, on the cross and the, and the, and the um, work he's done for us, the salvation work he's done for us. Um, and uh, man, love that question. Great question. Can you, uh, here's the next question. Can you pick three favorite passages from scripture and why they are among your favorites? Ah, another good question. So I will say Romans 10, 9 is actually my favorite verse. And I just, I just quoted it there. Um, you know, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hands down my favorite verse. It's the gospel wrapped in one verse. Um, and, and I, I, yeah, it's my favorite. Uh, Deuteronomy 31, eight is also one of my, my top verses. It says the Lord is the one that goes ahead of you. He is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Just awesome imagery there to think that the, that the God of the universe is, is ahead of you, but he's also with you at the same time. He's not going to fail you. He's not going to forsake you. You don't need to be fearful or dismayed. Wow. Super cool verse for me, uh, in some very hard times in, in, uh, in, in Lauren and I are in our personal life and, and also, uh, in my, in my career. And then John six John 16, 33 kind of has the same ring to it. Uh, it's Jesus talking to the, his disciples and he says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace in the world. You have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So he's speaking this to disciples about trouble. They're going to face um, the context is for, for being his disciples and for, pro, for proclaiming the gospel. Um, and that's true. Like we, we will face tribulation if we, uh, confess, you know, Jesus as our savior, if we confess our, our, and surrender to God, if we promote his word and the gospel, yeah, we, we are going to face tribulation. We should expect some pushback for that. Um, but I think it's just also prevalent on on a level of in this world because of sin we face trouble we we face tribulation we face hard times but listen Jesus has already overcome that we don't see that yet we don't have the benefits of that yet but he's he's overcome the world and and he's overcome the world we're in right now uh, even when it, it feels like he hasn't um, he already has the victory 
All right, next question. Can you share one or more of your favorite moments, memories, incidents as a supervisor and some of the hardest moments, lessons learned, worst memories as a supervisor? Oh boy, here we go. Uh, favorite memory, moment, incident, um, lessons learned. I think anytime I had a hardworking, squared away officer indicate that they wanted to work for me, uh, that was a win for me. And and likewise, I think anytime I had a problem officer uh, talking badly about me behind my back or, or trying to transfer away from me, uh, I also considered that a win. Uh, I did not have any time for officers who were um, slugs or, or officers who were disasters off duty. Uh, you know, I, I tried to conduct myself in a certain way on and off duty. Uh, that didn't mean I didn't make any mistakes or, or did never did anything wrong, but I always tried to take responsibility for those things and, and just take whatever discipline or consequences was, was handed down to me for that. But, um, you know, I think some officers felt I was too demanding or intense uh, but I, I, I never expected anything out of my officers that I didn't expect from myself, uh, except for, for one incident, which, which is going to be a lesson learned. I'll, I'll bring that up here in a little bit. But I think, you know, for me, finishing my career uh, in Lancaster City with the Lancaster City Police Department, with the Selective Enforcement Unit there, uh, contained some of my very best memories as a supervisor. You know, that unit was m- made of hand-picked officers who were... Uh, probably the most dedicated, courageous, extremely hardworking, uh, high, very good character integrity, um, some of the best on the department. And and one of my favorite incidents, uh, incidents on that unit was them showing that dedication and commitment to take down a group, you know, a violent group that was involved in drug dealing and gun violence and doing it in the midst of Lancaster City Police Department's pandemic response, which in essence, completely shut our unit down for the time. So basically what happened is, is my guys and I, we were all split up. We were all assigned to different shifts, working nights, no complaints. Not one of those guys made a complaint um, about it. I didn't, I didn't hear one of them and none of us wanted to do it. Um, you know, we were, we were in the middle of some active drug investigations and uh, we had to put those on hold, including one that was nearing completion and it was poised to stop a violent group of drug dealers um, that had been involved in multiple shootings and, um, all of it was put on hold and, and we were put back on shifts on, on night work, uh, to help the shifts, uh, with, with the COVID, uh, you know, the way we were handling COVID and we all did it. Uh, but then while we were doing that, the violence then peaked, uh, while we were all reassigned and suddenly, you know, getting this group arrested and, and, um, eradicated became priority number one. Um, to get these guys off the street. So because of the type of officers I had working for me and because of their work, they, they did before they were all um, put back on patrol uh, platoons, I found it was actually not, I mean, it was still difficult to coordinate between all of them because we were all working opposite nights. So none of us were working. We, we all weren't working the same nights. We were working opposite nights. So uh, coordinating all of them to be able to uh, get all the legal paperwork squared away, all our reports squared away so that judges could sign, you know, multiple search warrants, that sort of thing. Um, that was challenging, but they were up for the task. We did it. Uh, we then coordinated with other agencies and we coordinated with the county special emergency response team, which is like a SWAT team to, uh, hit two houses. We hit, hit the doors on two houses nearly simultaneously. 
Um, and then we had a, a, a third search warrant later that we did uh, for money. And, and out of that, you know, my guy seized a large amount of cash. Uh, we, we seized three firearms, two of which were stolen, um, and, and drugs. And we took several violent felons off the street. So that was, that was really successful. I'm also really proud of an investigation back at the beginning of 2019. I wasn't involved in the beginning of this investigation, but I was at the tail end. And uh, I was proud of that because we, we, as a unit, coordinated with the ATF. We coordinated again with the SWAT team to uh, take down a guy who was dealing drugs. And when we did that, uh, we, found a, we found a cache of guns, of over 20 guns. Um, and, and that guy is currently in federal prison for, for nearly 10 years. So that was really cool. Working with those guys was an awesome way to uh, close out my career uh, in Lancaster City. Uh, worst memory, hardest moments, um, lessons learned, 2020. Hands down, the hardest thing I had to do as a supervisor. Um, I loved working for LCPD, uh, but our response to things during the summer of 2020 was was wrong. Um, and I, I laid that out. In my first episode and my episodes with Chief Berkeheiser, um, those critiques, those concerns, those disagreements, um, I, I presented all those to people I disagreed with, including the mayor. And uh, I didn't just go in this podcast and air my grievances. I, I did it in person to the to to people um, because I just I just felt that it was it was it was wrong. One of my favorite. Um, Probably my favorite leadership quote comes from um, a gentleman by the name of Max Dupree. And he says, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. In between the two, the leader must become a servant. Um, At all times, you have to define reality, clear expectations, and why. You have to give your people clear expectations and give them the why behind the expectations. Uh, It's not just a because I said so. Give them a why. Um, they, they've gone through the training. They've worked hard to get where they're going. Uh, they deserve to know why you have the expectations you have. Always say thank you um, and express your appreciation. And, and lastly, but definitely most important, be a servant. Um, you are no longer the guy. You are the one behind the guy. Uh, you and and you know your structure of your department. You serve the people below you, but mentally, in my mind, I always viewed myself as being below them and lifting them up and supporting them. You have to think critically about how you can best keep them safe, help them, and make their job easier and care for them. It's easy to think. It it, it really is. It's really easy to think about what you've earned and the blood and sweat and tears that you've put in uh, for all the years before you got promoted and why you deserve the perk of being a supervisor and laying back and taking it easy. That's wrong. It's so wrong. You're there to serve. That's what you're, that's that you got promoted to serve your people. You are a servant leader. That's, that's what you do. Um, and, and, uh, I took that very seriously and I thought about it a lot. I thought about it seriously, um, because we're selfish people. So you have to like really think seriously about how am I going to lead how am I going to motivate? Um, and how am I going to set an example for for the people that that uh, work work for me um, and answer to me? Uh, one of the biggest lessons I learned, I think, then was in regards to the servant role. Um, in 2020, uh, for a whole week, uh, we were dealing with protesters. Um, at some points, riotous behavior, and um, 
we never shut it down. And I, and I talked about, I had a problem with that. And, uh, I felt like the, you know, at, at, at some points we as a department were aligning with the movement, uh, when, when we should have been apolitical and not taking on causes, you know, and I'll talk about the danger of this later on this episode, but we, we weren't being apolitical. We were, we were allowing a group of people to, you have the right to protest. You have the right to protest and lawfully assemble, lawfully assemble. But once you, um, you know, continue to block streets and interrupt the flow of law-abiding citizens and shut streets down and march in the middle of streets, at some point expectations uh, need to be set. And we, and we didn't do that. And we allowed them to disrupt traffic and march every single day for like a week. And towards the end of the week, uh, we were we were directed to start leading these marches. And I, I felt it was wrong because I felt that we were leading people in breaking the law. Um, we were, you know, they were, they were disrupting, uh, several blocks in the city. They would go in these long marches and they were disrupting all these blocks because traffic couldn't travel. People couldn't walk, uh, freely. And, uh, so on principle, I refused to do it. Um, it, it violated my oath. It violated what I believed was policy and, and, and what I was called to as a police officer. And, um, the fallout from that was that then my guys had to do it. And um, what I saw out of them was servant leadership being modeled for me uh, because my guys then stepped up and, and took turns doing it uh, because a little piece of them died every time they did it. I watched it happen. And um, I saw my guys step up and take turns and say, hey, I'll go out this time. Uh, they did it last time and that sort of thing. And um, I apologized for that. It was a valuable lesson because I believe I left a, a principle become more important than my people. And, um, you know, there are times when that has to happen, I think, you know, if it's, if it's a biblical principle and, you know, I struggle with that. But in that moment, it was not the right decision. And uh, basically, they had a, a crappy task and they had to do it. And uh, I refused to help them do it. And um, I took that seriously, and uh, I apologized to them. And uh, I still regret it. I still regret it to this day. But uh, they forgave me, and uh, we moved on. And uh, But it was a lesson learned. So anyways, great questions. Uh, really good questions from all of you. Uh, really appreciate uh, you submitting these questions, and I hope, uh, I hope you found them interesting uh, to, to take in and listen to. The dude. A Q the Dip winner, aka Kicking Up the Dust in Pursuit winner, is picked every week by me. It's always goes, uh, it always goes to an officer who gets after it. On this episode, it goes to two unnamed officers with the Toledo Police Department in Ohio who ran into an incredible gunfight. Listen to this body cam recording as presented on CBS WTOL 11 out of Toledo.
Give it! Listen, when I watched this video and heard this video, uh, I was I was pretty upset. I mean, this is exactly why we should show deference to the police. Exactly why. Here's what happened. It's a 4th of July block party just this year. It's going into the 5th of July. There's a call for a fight with shots fired involving 300 people. Uh, these two officers uh, who you hear in the video, who you hear in this audio, uh, appear to be the first to arrive and they find themselves in the middle of a hellacious gunfight between multiple idiots. Uh, ultimately, 12 people are shot, one killed. Uh, the person that's killed is a 17-year-old. And upon arrival, you hear shots being fired. People are fleeing from the gunfire and these two officers get out and run toward the gunfire. They do not take cover at their car. And, and while they try to track down and stop these multiple threats, they are directing people to get cover, to get down, explaining where to seek cover. People are screaming to them about victims. And I, I can tell you in an incident like this, the victims at this point have to wait. You have to stop the threat first. You have to hunt down and eliminate it. And I know people don't like that, that terminology, but in this incident, you must hunt down and eliminate that threat. Violence like this will not be stopped by anything other than righteous violence. And the officers in, in this event were trying to stop this with righteous violence. You have to. It's your duty. It's your job in that moment. What's amazing is approximately 80 rounds were fired by several different shooters in this event. Miraculously, I don't even know how this is possible, no shots were fired by any officer, even though a total of 70 ultimately responded to the area. I mean, when you listen to that video, I don't, I don't, they had to see shooters. They had to see shooters. And if they, and, and maybe they did and just didn't have the background because there were so many people to be able to take 
take good, clean shots. I, I don't know. No arrests have been made. And here's the thing. People at the party are not cooperating with investigators. 300 people at the party, not one, wants to step forward and talk to investigators, even though the ATF is offering a $5,000 reward. That's the problem. That's the problem. The culture is the problem, not the police. Not one person will step forward and give information. Not one. Maybe it's changed by now, but I don't think so, because when I was looking at this, these articles, there's no updated articles for it. There's just these articles from back when it happened. So I want to point out that this is not only a problem that happens somewhere else. It happens here. Just recently, there were articles in our, in our local newspaper here for Lancaster. July 3rd, multiple shots fired with possibly two shooters and four people struck. Right in downtown Lancaster, July 13th, a woman was shot in the city. Also in July 13th, at a different scene, three people were shot, possibly three different shooters. These were in the news. But you know what wasn't in the news? How many shots were fired? Why is that? Why don't we know how many shots were fired at these incidents? We know that multiple shooters at two of them. We know multiple people struck at two of them but we have no idea how many shots were fired. I find that interesting. Last weekend, 70 people were shot in Chicago. 70. Last weekend, 7-0 people shot in Chicago. 12 of them killed. How do we solve this problem? Well, first, the reality. Uh, we'll, We'll never solve the problem because the hearts of people are set on doing evil. On this side of heaven, we will never solve this problem. Nothing we will do can correct it. Only God can correct it. So the better question is that is the better question to ask is not how can we solve it or eradicate it, but how can we lessen it or curb it? What are those things we can do uh, for that? Well, I you know I have some ideas, albeit they may not be popular with everyone, but. One of President Biden's ideas for Chicago is to send a, quote, strike force made up of ATF agents and other federal agents. Here's my problem with this. Instead of spending more federal money, why not actually allow the CPD to do their job that the taxpayers of Chicago and the city pay them to do instead of refusing to let them do it? Like with these, this ridiculous foot pursuit policy. I know I've talked about this before, but this thing makes me crazy. Like, let... CPD do their job, then you wouldn't need a strike force. I've also read calls for more gun laws and stricter gun laws and how that would solve it. Except that Chicago already has pretty stringent gun laws. And here's a newsflash. The only people who follow laws are those that keep the law. You think a new gun law is going to stop Joe Dirtbag Idiot Savant and president of the Thug Life Brain Trust to follow a new law? No, it's not. Here's my idea. Leaders and politicians, give your officers the freedom to proactively patrol and use their experience and training to aggressively interdict. And let them know that you will back them when that action is met with resistance, because it will be, and they are forced to use righteous force to overcome it. And then, and then have legitimate and hefty consequences for those they arrest. Don't keep courts shut down for COVID. Lay these guys out in court. Bring back mandatory sentences. Like, let's say you have a gun. 
just a, a regular run-of-the-mill gun charge. You're not a felon, but you're toting a gun illegally. I say automatic mandatory 10 years. Let's say you're a felon or you're carrying a stolen gun or you commit a crime with a gun, mandatory 20 years with any aggravating circumstances, adding a mandatory five years to the sentence. That'll start getting some people's attention. I know, it, you know, people are like, well, that's a simplistic mindset. These are complex problems that should be attacked with more than just the criminal justice system. I'm fine with having that conversation, but as I've said before, and I'll continue to beat this dead horse, you need consequences in conjunction with the other stuff. A fluffy program with a free criminal will do nothing to curb his behavior. Confinement and discipline and hard consequences, along with other programs and treatments and services, oh, maybe you can curb it. Maybe you can correct it. It runs a much better chance. I mean, the bottom line is laws don't encourage good behavior. Well, I should say laws encourage good behavior. But consequences bring it about. In other words, a law gives us parameters, but if those stepping outside those parameters face no consequences, then the law doesn't matter. It's useless. Only the consequences, when you break that law, curb behavior. Laws without consequences are are useless. It reminds me of Ecclesiastes 8, 11 to 13. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow because he does not fear before God. Today, we're obsessed with letting criminals go free. Low bail or no bail, short sentences. And then we wonder why crime is skyrocketing. Why not? When there are no consequences, this is what happens. You do a crime and you can be walking the street within 24 24 hours later and then wait months or sometimes even a year plus until your trial while you commit more crime. With COVID, the courts were, and some continue to be shut down with criminals, freely walking the street and doing whatever they wish. I'm not joking. In 2020, we were arresting prior felons, prior felons, for committing new felonies. And within 24 hours, they were out walking the street because of COVID and because of the social justice climate. That excuse is still being used right now today. Go on YouTube and look up the Washington, D.C. police chief talking about one of their most recent brazen shootings that took place in the middle of the day with law-abiding citizens trying to go about their law-abiding ways. He lays it out. I'll tell you personally that in 2020, we arrested many drug dealers over a couple-month period in late spring, early summer. The majority of our white suspects were getting housed, I mean housed, with high bails, regardless of what their rap sheets looked like. It didn't, it didn't seem like COVID mattered. And the majority of our black and brown suspects, some of which had rap sheets the length of my arms, were getting released almost immediately. Is that right? Was it just mere coincidence? I don't think so. Or are we engaged in a social experiment where the facts of the cases don't matter, only outside forces and pressure? I'm questioning the actions and efforts of other criminal justice entities, namely the courts and legislators who make the law, 
and set sentencing guidelines. And obviously, the responsible parties in these situations, the suspects, are to fully be blamed for their personal actions. But what about the police? Let's bring the police into this. Sure, they're facing obscene amounts of pressure. But how are they doing it? Doing how are they doing with doing their job? What is their job? When I was growing up, I didn't want anything to do with the police, not because I didn't like them or didn't trust them, quite the opposite. I held them in very high esteem and I understood that they held an important role in the community. If I had to interact with them, it would mean I was doing things I shouldn't do. I didn't desire to hang out with them. I didn't feel slighted if I didn't see one. And I I saw that begin to change during my career. I remember a supervisor telling me to go and speak to a person because that person had not seen a police officer in a while. And I thought to myself, is that really how we should be using police resources to have me go talk to someone who claimed they hadn't seen a police officer in a while? Somehow that this law-abiding citizen had a right to see and talk to a police officer to make, to make him feel better or her feel better? It was just weird to me. And not how I'd grown up or what I expected out of the police. But that thought and that belief has grown and turned into a monster, and generally speaking, police departments have allowed it. They have not set boundaries or clear expectations. And yes, absolutely, the police serve the community. But part of the service is clearly defining realities and setting boundaries about what that service looks like and what that service provides. Service without boundaries quickly becomes bondage. Service without conviction quickly becomes empty and meaningless. Service dictated completely by the one you serve means control handed over. Case in point are my thoughts on leadership, which I talked about earlier. I believe in servant leadership. As a leader, you serve your people, but it isn't without boundaries or convictions or expectations or realities. To serve without these means the one you serve control you, direct you, enslave you to their agenda. That's not leadership. The police should not be enslaved to the agenda of anyone. The police are bound by the law. They hold duty to their oath to uphold the law. I'm not saying that they are just an occupying force in their jurisdiction and shouldn't seek to be part of the community. Not at all. I think one of the best ways to do that is is do things where you're reaching out to the kids in those communities. But I think every officer should be driving around with their windows down, if it's safe to do so, greeting people, getting to know the good and the bad in their areas, doing store checks and bank checks and business checks, and doing bike and foot patrols. These things encourage and bring a sense of peace and security to the law keepers and bring a level of worry and angst to the lawbreakers. That is law enforcement. But what I am saying is that in certain communities and jurisdictions, law enforcement is losing its way. I really believe that. Some are being pushed to and fro by the winds of social justice and agendas. Case in point, the Miami-Dade Police Department during Gay Pride Month wrapped a cruiser in LGBTQ awareness messages. I saw officers congratulating themselves and patting each other on the back, praising each other that the department was taking such a proactive social stance to reach the community. But what about a part of the community, or what about the part of the community that had personal convictions or beliefs that don't align with or agree with that agenda. Let's take it further and say a pro-life or abolish abortion group wish to wrap a cruiser with pro-life messages and a proclamation about how abortion is murder. 
Should that be allowed? If you say, well, yes, that should be allowed, well, then you are opening police departments up to be controlled by agendas, by social justice movements, and other entities instead of being bound to the law. You're opening them up to be controlled by whoever's in charge. And if you say no, the LGBTQ cruiser rap is fine, but the pro-life abolish abortion rap is not fine, well, then you have police departments playing favorites and showing that they are squarely behind certain agendas and not others and raising suspicion about who is controlling them. And if they are really a law enforcement agency or a social agenda agency, proof that they can be bought and controlled. Do you see how dangerous that is? The role of the police is to serve the community by providing safety and security through law enforcement. And so you can have people in your police department that have all types of beliefs and all types of faiths and all types of lifestyles, but willingly engage with each other and with the community in a way that shows no partiality as they simply enforce the law to the best of their ability in this broken world. But if you start pushing agendas as a police department, well, then you begin to break down the officers in your own agency into certain camps. And the public begins to wonder if they are being broken down into certain camps or what happens if they disagree with a social statement being made by the department. I worked with guys and gals who held opinions and held beliefs that I didn't agree with, but that didn't mean I refused to work with them or that I hated them. I mean, that's the discipline as a police officer. That's the discipline as a Christian to treat people kindly and with respect, regardless of whether you agree with them or not. And the same is the interaction between the police and the community. It should be the same there. But we see this drift to have the police embrace certain social and political things instead of remaining completely neutral. And this goes hand in hand with this push in law enforcement to be engaged in lots of things that look really good, but are doing little to fulfill the duty or the calling of the police. I've had the gnawing feeling that law enforcement is losing its way. I tend to find myself getting more and more simple in a, what we were told, a growing complex world. And part of our problem is that we are making solutions so complex people can't even move. This is true for police officers. We're putting so many logistical and mental hurdles in front of them. Many have just stopped kicking up the dust in pursuit of lawbreakers. One such hurdle is found in some police departments where leaders feel the incessant need to appease people and make people feel good instead of simply allowing their officers to do their jobs and then aggressively backing them up. The mission is law enforcement. It's not appeasing people. It's not controlling and begging people to live rightly. It's not pushing social agendas. It's not hoping kindness stops the madness. Nope, just simply law enforcement. The belief that police officers should be ministers of good to those who obey the law and ministers of wrath to the lawbreaker. But over my career and currently, I observe some police agencies getting sidetracked. We've gotten sidetracked with special programs, making TikTok videos, wrapping our cruisers with social justice slogans, and ordering our officers to attend coffee with a cop, painting with the police, cookies with rookies, and any other community event with a pithy title that we can promote on social media. And to what end? And I've been to those events. I have friends that still go to those events. Well, I believe it's an attempt to try and conjure up something that can, quite frankly, uh, can only come about and be done with good old-fashioned police work. Let me be clear. I'm not saying these things or events are pointless or wrong in and of themselves. 
but are they really helping us fulfill the mission we are to be carrying out in law enforcement? Should we be as focused on them as we are? Probably not. I don't think so. Most of the people clicking on your silly TikTok video of you dancing in your uniform in front of a cruiser or singing in your car or whatever it is that you're doing, and most of the people coming to your pithy named events already like you. Coffee with a cop and painting with the police and TikTok videos and feel-good messages on cruisers will only ever reach a small group of people, making them feel really good, but not doing too much else. Meanwhile, the criminal wolves are out there, and they're chuckling to themselves, and their good fortune of less law enforcement on the street actually fulfilling the mission. You have a much higher degree of affecting long-lasting change and improvement if you actually are doing the things that best accomplish law enforcement. So how do you affect long-lasting change? I think you just get back to the basics. You keep it simple. You don't dive into the complex world of trying to appease every social justice movement or political entity. You cannot and will never appease the mob that hates you. Because many in the mob don't hate you because of what you do, but because of who you are and what you represent. As Romans 13 teaches us, you should get busy praising those who are doing good and crushing those who are doing evil. But instead, and to the joy of the criminal wolves, we are ordering really good officers to attend that event and drink really bad coffee while they force a smile and talk to people that already believe in what they are doing. And while they're doing that, the citizens in our townships and towns and cities desperately want the police to be doing their job. Your good, courageous, assertive police officers are dying inside at these events, while the citizens they are sworn to serve are also suffering in their neighborhoods. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know. I think leaders need to stand up and get your officers in their neighborhoods and sectors and areas. Let them do their job. Direct them to patrol with their windows down. Again, if it's safe for them to do so, there I, I, there's some areas where it's not safe to patrol with your windows down. But direct them to park the cruiser and walk their problem areas. And if it's too dangerous for them to walk that problem block by themselves, you know what you do? You get old school. You get a small army of officers to go in and walk it. Do you know how many thank yous you'll get from citizens in a block like that? where it's literally too dangerous for one officer to walk through it. So you take a small army in and you walk through it. You'll get a lot of thank yous. If you remember my conversation with Chief Sadler, he talks about this. He was assigned to an area. He had some problem people in that area. He made it his mission to make their life miserable and to drive them off. He was getting invited in for dinner. To people's houses. And again, that might not happen as quickly today or, or at all today, but you're still going to have people thanking you. Maybe they do it privately by email. Maybe they just give you a wink when you pass by. Maybe they whisper it when you pass by. But that makes a difference. Direct your people to do the bank checks and the store checks. The business checks. All, all those things will do actually much more to improve how you're viewed by the community in which you serve. Because you'll be out there and you'll be doing it organically where they live. You'll be meeting them where they live. While I'm expressing unpopular opinions, here's another one along the same thoughts. Recently, there was a police department in PA who held a contest for kids to design a police cruiser. A little girl won. And I am, I'm, in, I'm in no way 
against the drawings and paintings of little girls. I have a little girl who I love very much. She makes me amazing cards and drawings, but they in no way should be painted on an actual police car that patrols any jurisdiction. And the same can be said for this one. This cruiser is covered in hearts and the quote, the world needs love. I, I guess I just struggle to see how this is going to make a difference. It looks nice. It feels nice. It's so cute. It gets social media likes from people that already love you. But in reality, what is it going to do? I mean, am I? maybe I'm missing something. If you listen to this episode, reach out to me. I, I, I mean, I'm sure I will have some guys reach out to me and tell me that I'm a little off the wall here. But you, you couldn't pay me enough to patrol in that cruiser. I wouldn't do it. Why? Because it literally has nothing to do with law enforcement. The people in the communities I patrolled did not pay taxes to see brightly colored police cruisers created by children. They pay taxes in part to pay for a police department to provide safety for them. You think this car is going to strike fear into the hearts of anyone engaged in criminal activity? Do you think this car will do anything to promote safety? It promotes good feelings and heart emojis on social media, but literally does nothing to promote a safer neighborhood. And this is my issue with all these things. How are they helping law enforcement fulfill their mission? Many departments are so sidetracked with planting gardens and handing out food or ice cream and sipping coffee with people, doing dances in uniform, building social media following. But how are, how is that really affecting change in the community? Like a community like Toledo, Ohio, how are those things affecting change at a party where 300 people are attending and you have multiple shooters and 80 bullets being fired? Has any of that changed the hearts and minds of people in that community? How are these types of things helping in DC where the chief recently decried the shooting that happened in broad daylight? How are these things helping in in Lancaster City where shootings with multiple shooters and shots are being fired? Maybe they maybe they are. Maybe maybe I'm the one that's crazy. Maybe I just, you know, maybe I'm off the wall here. The truth is you have some men and women in your roll calls and in your lineups every shift that are very capable of affecting the crime wave sweeping this country. We can either allow them to do their job or not do it. We can show them deference and benefit of the doubt, or we can show criminals benefit of the doubt. We can enforce the law or we can enforce social justice agendas. We can either kick up the dust in pursuit or we can lay back and bask in the social media glow of our empty, virtuous deeds. I, for one, want more cue the dip winners. They are making a difference. They are kicking up the dust in spite of the stress, the pressure, and the hatred. Am I? Are you? Are we kicking up the dust in pursuit in our spheres of influence? I hope so.